Health is not a luxury product, but why have our systems commodified health? And how might we design health into our everyday lives? I'm Bon Koo, the host of Design Lab, a podcast that explores the intersection of design and health. Our guest is Joanne Chung. She is an artist and a designer. She formerly served as the director of systems change at the global design firm IDEO. In her ongoing effort to amplify the public impact of research and policy through design, she spearheaded creative collaborations with institutions such as Harvard Earth and Planetary Sciences Visualization Lab and the Dartmouth Life Sciences Center. She has been a fellow at the Harvard Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society and the American Association of University of Women, an artist in residence at the Icelandic Association of Visual Arts. Joanne's work has been featured in Wallpaper, Wired, Azure Magazine, Fast Company, and the New York Times. She lectures at the D School at Stanford University and the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. If you haven't done so already, visit our website at designlabpod.com. There you can find show notes from each episode, learn more about the guests, and get links to related content from each episode. And you'll find a link to subscribe to our VIP newsletter. So you don't have to go to our website, but instead get an email from our producer, Rob Puglisi, with show notes and links right in your email inbox whenever a new episode drops. Thanks for giving us a five-star rating, both on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We appreciate your support. Uh, if you haven't done so, please go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Give us five stars. Even better, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This really helps others find out about the show. Now, here's my conversation with Joanne Chung. Joanne Chung, welcome to Design Lab. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Yeah, delighted to be here. Yeah. So you describe yourself as both an artist and a designer, but you're also interested in health. So I'm curious to know what led you to study design and how did you as a designer and artist get interested in the field of health? Yeah, so I was born in China. My parents, my grandparents, basically, as far as I think... The family history goes have all been workers in health, be it mm -hmm. physicians or nurses and whatnot. So, and of course, this is what China in the early 80s. And so, like, all of the housing is related to where your family works. So mm -hmm. I basically lived and grew up in a hospital. Like, and so, you know, I, I just remember growing up, if my mom had a night shift, she would send me off to another nurse and I just uh -huh. started calling everyone mom. So it was that kind of thing where healthcare was all around me growing up. Huh. And I think one of my favorite games that I played, which I made up when I was a child, was to give people x-rays. My grandma's a radiologist. <laughs> <laughs> so the way I did that was I would like, like whenever we had a guest, I would ask them for their arm and I would draw with a marker, like a broken bone on their arm. And I would take a wet paper towel and like put it on their arm and have an imprint. <laughs> so oh, that's I what that. I called in giving them the x-ray. Any case, so... Well, so you really come from a long lineage of <laughs> physicians and healthcare workers. Your grandma was a radiologist, you said? Yeah, my grandmother, I think, like, I mean, and then this is pretty sure her parents were practitioners of Chinese medicine. Wow. So she's, she trained in Western medicine, but it's health, you know, all of the instruments, everything was very familiar to me because it was uh -huh. kind of the context for where I grew up. That being said... 
the only person in my family who decided not to go to med school. I went to art school, (laughs) which was like a bit of a controversy, I think. Oh, I I could imagine They're all like, how can they, you know, and I'm a single child. Like, how could you like not do the thing that we've always (laughs) done? And I mean, at the time, I think it was hard for me to even to explain, but it just didn't feel right. And I think over the years, I found that increasingly I've come full circle to seeing that art and creativity are as related to why what drives people to medicine. Mm. So, you know, the about caring for people, caring for communities, but also for me doing things in a creative way. Yeah. And I think increasingly the realization that a lot of the challenges that are in the world that need to be healed are things that are at a systems level that it's really hard to do if you're just one nurse or one doctor. So I kind of increasingly saw that in my own family and the limitations of their own practice. And so this is, I guess, why (laughs) I went the other way. But I think still a lot of my work is very much related to health. It's just that I'm coming at it from another angle. That's so fascinating. I'm coming at it from a totally 180 degrees where I went, I was like, my parents are Korean and I had to become a physician. Otherwise they would have disowned me. And I came into art and creativity after I was a practicing physician and then seeing, oh, there, there is that connection there between like health and creativity. And I'm curious to know from your lens, how do you see that connection? Because it's not obvious to a lot of people. I think the connection is like caring about people, but then understanding that you can't just look at people as individuals. You have to look them look at them in the context of their culture, their communities, larger systems in society. And then, you know, very quickly you get up to the planetary level and talk about things like climate change. Yeah. So I think, you know, looking at my own family, everybody's specialized basically in a different body part, right? Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. My grandmother's uh-huh the radiologist and my other grandmothers in reproductive health. So they basically looked at just different parts of the human body, not even uh-huh. maybe at the person as a whole. And I think like we want that kind of expertise and attention, mm-hmm. but also increasingly it's impossible to try to understand or care for like a small part of a human body without also caring about things at bigger and bigger scales. Mm. And so I think the practice of creative work is to try to connect things across these different scales Mm. so that your actions are helping, you know, are laddering up to impact at a systems level. But of course, you can't only act on the systems level. You can, you have to also come back down to the ground. So I think this constant changing of scales is something that, you know, like the famous Eames powers of 10 is something that's I think is an increasingly important practice. So if I were to do it all over again, I mean, I think I feel like the future of med school is probably not only going to be studying like very hyper-focused things, but also Uh has ways to encourage people to think on a systems level. Yeah. And especially what you said about connecting things at different scales, I think is so needed in the practice of of medicine because health happens on such a hyper-local level basis, but at the same time, the larger system impacts it as as well. And mm-hmm. it's hard to connect those different threads. And I'm just fascinated that you got into design 
being from a family of healthcare workers. How did that happen? Yeah, I actually studied architecture. That's kind of my entry point to design. You were at the GSD at Harvard? I went to the Graduate Uh, School of Design at the GSD, which has its lineage from the Bauhaus when back Uh, when Gropius was the, I guess, the head of the school. I think some of that came from, I don't know if you have this experience with a family of physicians, but they always want to fix you. (laughs) I have no physicians in my family, so I was the first... Position oh, okay. in the family, yeah. yeah but, so there's no doctors well, in the family. Not accusing you of anything, <laughs> but it's you know they're really good at spotting what's wrong. It's like <laughs> what's going on. Like let me fix this. <laughs> let me like tell you what to do. So I'm sure that became you know maybe a bit of a burden for me, just being like I want to have agency over <laughs> not only my future but like my kind of perspective on the world. And I think what drew me to design is that it's something, it's a practice that connects history. So diagnoses, understandings of the past with actual concrete plans for the future and Mm. the action necessary to take to realize it. So I was unsatisfied with only recognizing what's wrong, but I also wanted to build things to make things better so that doesn't happen again. So that really drove me to design because it's a very future-oriented practice. Yeah. I think you just read my mind and described what drove me to design as well, but Uh not as articulate as you. So I was like, so right now you're teaching a very cool class at Stanford with one of my favorite people, Steve Downs. Can you tell us the title of that class and what you're teaching? So the class is in collaboration with Steve and also Sarah Singer, who's a professor at Stanford, and it's called Upstreaming Health. So the premise of the class is that health isn't something that starts at the hospital. Actually, it begins upstream. It starts in your home, in your community, in your everyday behavior, in your everyday interactions. Mm. And that's really the building block of good health. Mm. So the class is to explore what this space called the upstream actually means. And so everything from what individuals can do to what their communities can do and also how organizations can support the space because that's what really bolsters health at a systems level. Mm. So it's kind of a combination of human-centered design with systems thinking and also a lot of kind of community-based activist practices. And we get a pretty good mix of folks coming from health, but also business and also engineering, which is great because health is something that touches you know, every aspect of life. So it's really not just people who are specialists yeah. who should care about it. So it's not a bunch of pre-meds in the room <laughs> or, or physicians. You and know, it's what, funny. What, what? <laughs> we do get, I mean, we, so for D-School classes, you have to apply. So I think we've had, we've had some applications where people are like, I'm a pre-med, but I really don't want to be a doctor. Or like, I, <laughs> you know, I'm, <laughs> I see all the problems that are wrong. They're very, very intelligent. Clearly, because they they already see that the limitations of that practice. So they want to work in different ways. And maybe the systems aren't in place for that kind of work yet. So they really want to explore these alternatives. But very much, I think there's a kind of general understanding amongst students and Uh youth now that like the status quo is not working. It's not just that if you just go down the normal track, even if it's successful by all metrics of one person's career, but it's not really having the kind of impact in the world that they want to see. So Mm. they're looking for different ways of working. Mm. And I imagine you talk a lot about how like 
systems shape our everyday health. But when when I was in medical school, it just seemed medicine what the way I was taught medicine so individual behavior specific. Like how do we live a healthy life? Diet, exercise, sleep. Let's focus on how can I get my patient to eat better, to exercise more, to sleep eight hours on on a regular basis. But it's focused on that one individual. But your emphasis is a little bit different in the class. Yeah, I think all of those elements are still really, really important, of course. Though I think our emphasis might be what are the conditions that are necessary for that to happen at all? So, for example, if you think about, let's say, the history of redlining, right, in the U.S., mm-hmm. and how that completely segregated neighborhoods and drained resources from certain neighborhoods, which mm-hmm. led to higher pollution in previously redlined neighborhoods, lack of trees, and lack of public space, and food deserts, right? So when you think about eating, sleeping, getting exercise, the very conditions that enable that are not present simply from that history of redlining. So getting one individual to eat better, sleep better, and work out is not going to solve redlining as a kind of discriminatory practice. Yeah. And for certain populations, that's a lot harder to do than in maybe certain populations that have more resources, more wealthier populations, because there may be be a park right there, or you have the resources to get eight hours of sleep a night because you're not working two jobs. Yeah. Health should not be a luxury product. And I think in many ways, it's increasingly become that. And I think we need to just rethink the very fundamentals for what people deserve for a good life. I, and, I love I love that yeah. statement right there. Health is not a luxury product because we get this narrative in society that health is like health and wellness is this luxury product. Like why? How do we get there? Like what, yeah. why is that the overriding narrative around health? I think it has to do with a certain, I think there, well, let's say like some macro forces at work, right? You know, you have on the one hand kind of this obsessive, unrelenting focus on productivity and everybody's overworking, burning themselves out, this kind of, yeah, hyper focus on growth. And then on the other hand, there's also like the digital detox, self care, and all of these ways to help people kind of recalibrate and then feel better. So how I think the pendulum swing is too extreme, right? You can't have on the one hand from Monday to Friday, you're really burning yourself out. And then on Saturday and Sunday, you're going to just like recenter yourself and then just go back to doing that all over again. That feels unsustainable as a societal practice. If anything, because when you have these extremes, they're kind of parasitic in a way they Mm. reinforce one another yeah and all the while you have a hyper consumer society that is predatory on these extremes so i feel like as a human that's too much cognitive dissonance to swallow like we need more coherent lives where we don't have to constantly swing between these unsustainable (laughs) yeah swing it between these we need a more coherent way of existing in your class how do you talk about designing health into everyday life? What does that look like in the present or in the future? One big thing is we encourage a kind of thinking across scale. So as someone who's trained in architecture, this is something that feels pretty second nature to me. So for you know, for everything you look at 
what does it look like the human scale? What does it look like at the building scale, the urban scale, and the regional scale? And、mm. depending on your level of zoom, different things come into focus, right? It's kind of like when you zoom in on Google Maps. If you're、mm. really far out, you can only see certain patterns. You zoom in, you can see individual houses, individual people, and that's really important because the level of resolution, let's say, gives you different levels of legibility. And only when things become legible can you start to care about it. Because if you can't see it, you can't care about it. If you can't、yeah. care about it, you can't manage it, and then it becomes this invisible force, right? So one of the biggest things is that we, and this is pretty, still pretty crude, but it's a good starting point, is that we encourage thinking at the individual scale, like the personal scale,、uh-huh. then also the family as a unit. The community as a unit, and then also campus, because these are students. So Stanford campus as a unit,、mm-hmm. and then Palo Alto as a unit, and the Bay Area as a region as a unit. And so across these different scales, the same topic might look very different. So you、mm-hmm. might look at, for example, eating as your individual choices around your meals. But when you look at the regional scale, you start to see food systems、mm-hmm. and different types of land use. And different flows and different kinds of agricultural practices at work,、mm. and then you realize that your choices around what to eat and where it comes from is completely related to these macro patterns.、Mm. So I think constantly having that connection be very present in your mind, I think, is very helpful because it registers kind of human level choices with systems、yeah. level impact. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense when. I'm telling a patient to do something at the bedside. That understanding that scale will help me to understand maybe some of the barriers of some of my prescriptions that、uh-huh. I give to to give to the patient. Understanding it's kind of both on a micro and macro scale of where that patient is and how they interact with these different systems. And、uh-huh. I saw that, or I read. A line that I really liked. He said, "I really love the framing of health as part of a relationship." Can you unpack what that means? Yeah, I think there are certain things that are only definable relationally, right?、Mm-hmm. So, let's say, like a parent-child relationship, for example,、mm-hmm. or a teacher and a student. Like some of these, or what it means to be a mother. That's something that only arises in relation to something else. Mm-hmm. And that is a relation of care,、mm-hmm. and some kind of interdependence, I think. And this is David Graeber will have something to say about this with the bureaucratization of society. But I think increasingly there are roles in which they are not existing in relation to others that are kind of siloed and onto themselves, and that leads to a way of being in the world and also working that is somehow abdicated a certain responsibility towards mm-hmm. others. Mm-hmm. And I I believe that we're all better off if we could exist in relation to others, the other people, the environment, and have、yeah. that be foregrounded. And health is one of these things where you know it kind of has a multiplier effect, right? If I'm healthy, then、yeah. my family is healthy, and like if we're healthy, then our neighborhood is healthy. Yeah. And if our neighborhood is healthy, then we're also more likely to be healthy, especially during COVID. Totally. Right. <laughs> And of course, this is same goes with the environment, right? So I really want to advocate for a way of understanding health as a kind of accountability to others and a responsibility、mm-hmm. to others, and that our sense of value is derived from 
that kind of reciprocity yeah. that is defined in reciprocity. I think that way of understanding health rather than like an individual metric feels, well, if that, again, I think has more potential to nurture a systems level understanding and accountability, yeah. That's which is what we need now. Because so much of health and the marketing of health is individual behavior, thinking of like an Apple Watch or mm -hmm. smartphone app that tracks how much sleep you get, how many steps that you've taken, what you've eaten that day. It just kind of focus on you only. And I wanted to pick your brain. Do you think that other countries or other societies that's less individual in nature as American society have a better understanding of health being framed in a relationship? Mm. I think this is inseparable from the rise of consumerism in the U.S. in the mm. last century or so. There's a great documentary by Adam Curtis called Century of the Self, which basically is about the invention of the individual as a consumer. So you're not a person anymore. You're, you're a person when you buy stuff. And all of you is defined by your purchasing patterns. So mm. this really, of course, is getting blown to the extreme, right? <laughs> I think when, when the economy sees individuals as only as consumers, mm -hmm. then you have everything defined in terms of their own preferences and needs. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily their relationships with others, but treating like kind of their consuming patterns. But of course, we're not just consumers. We're also creative beings and yeah. we're also existing in relation to others. And we also give, right? Like those things are less acknowledged. And those are the things that kind of tether us to other people, but not in a way that if you just box someone in as a consumer, <laughs> it doesn't acknowledge that. So I think only when we start to see beyond that definition of the individual can we start acknowledging other ways of relating to people. Mm. You might see, I think, in in certain actually smaller, more rural areas. I had done a case study back when I was in grad school, and I went to study a bunch of small New Hampshire towns where people mm. are actually very, very dependent on one another, mm. but not in a way that's like, you know, my independence comes from the fact that I can buy anything on Amazon Prime, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's more that I need to depend on people around me to help me with this or that. And so there's a kind of web of mm. care and of help. Yeah, I think you know, that somehow became exclusively associated with places where there's less resources or that are kind of more remote and isolated. Yeah. But that I don't think that has to be the case. I mean, we've seen a lot of that during COVID, for example, like mm. lots of mutual aid networks that are very active and yeah. essential. Why can't that just be the case? <laughs> like, why can't we just really formally acknowledge that these connections have value, even in a hyper-connected urban setting? Yeah. That just reminds me of the story that you told in the beginning of our conversation of how your mom had dropped you off when she's going to a shift at the hospital with another nurse to take mm -hmm. care, to take care <laughs> totally. of Totally. Yeah. Right. Right. And so many of these are, you know, social capital, right? Like it's, we rely on each other and the connection has like no monetary implications whatsoever, Yeah, but simply because we are in relation to one another and that's important. Yeah. And also that that is something that is not to be commodified or especially extracted through commodification by another entity. I think those things should remain because they're kind mm. of sacred as connections between individual people. But 
we don't need a social media to mediate things like yeah. that. <laughs> this reminds me of a theme I've been researching a lot lately around community health resilience mm -hmm. and what role a neighborhood or a community on a micro level can play in determining their own health because health is delivered by healthcare institutions and, you know, these large medical centers or the health department mm -hmm. on a city, state, federal level and humans and their communities in which they live are often passive recipients of health that's being delivered to mm -hmm. them. So I just want to pick your brain, ask you yeah. on like, how can we design the health resilience of communities, especially, you know, coming off of this lingering pandemic and we know we're going to face future crises and totally. we know that some communities fare better than other communities. Yeah, totally. I think the whole framing of health delivery has never sat well with me because it has a very kind of, it's like a distribution model of health. Yeah. Right? You have a fulfillment center, let's say, and then when people <laughs> need something, it gets delivered and then frames a person as someone who is completely lacks agency <laughs> to create the conditions for their yeah. own flourishing. But of course, as humans, we've always done that. So why is it that suddenly that capability is extracted away and we're totally become dependent on these monolithic systems? Yeah. So this is actually the impetus behind the first mile health framing, which is that the first mile, which is like where people are, <laughs> is where health lives. Mm. And of course, we need healthcare systems, but it should not be framed as a very paternalistic, you know, model in yeah. which like treats where people are as an area of deficit. And I blame us doctors on creating that paternalistic model. <laughs> <laughs> it, I mean, not necessarily. It's I think it's and it's really not only the healthcare system too. I mean, every system is complex, and this is also a feature of systems: is that <laughs> it kind of dehumanizes right individuals. Yeah. But I think we also need concentrations of expertise and resources. So it's not to do away with them, but really to acknowledge that there are ways to center people's agency, to acknowledge yeah. people's like the fact that they're humans <laughs> and yeah. the complexities of their lives without boxing them in into a data set. And like you, I, I hate the framing of the delivery system. I just don't like that term. And I'm yeah. wondering what can we do to shift that narrative? I think building power at the community level is important. I think that is a very difficult thing to do now. I think community, the definition of community has evolved in the last mm -hmm. century. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, before the urbanization that we have now, communities used to be like people who live near you and they're pretty homogenistic, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> and they're pretty isolated. You're not going to have a lot of mobility like leaving or even social mobility, but they happen to be people who just live near you. I think community now has evolved to mean kind of people that you choose to be with who share a certain interest. So it's more of your kind of special interest aligned community. Mm -hmm. I think that makes it pretty tricky Yeah, because 
we need ways in which people who have differing needs, who are heterogeneous across age groups, race, and everything, are still able to have the kind of care. And that doesn't mean that just a single delivery system is going to kind of solve all of their needs. Mm -hmm. But in many ways, I think when you have a centralized delivery system model, that is a part of what it's offering. It's like a one-size-fit-all model. So if you are really building power at the community level, then you need ways to enable people who are heterogeneous to all find ways to be healthy. I wish I could take your class. And You're welcome to audit. <laughs> I, I, I wish it was like a med school class that was required. And uh, do you have any stories of aha moments from students who went into class thinking, oh, this is how health is. It's like healthcare delivery system context. <laughs> and then and they're like, whoa, it's so much more than that. Yeah, because we started the class during COVID, you know, it's obviously uh, very, very top of mind for everyone, especially people's psychological well-being. Like it was mm. super top of mind. I think what has been some aha moments, not only for the students, but for us is that like people play a lot of different roles at all times. And mm. I think that gets more and more complex the farther along one one is in their lives. So mm. when you're, let's say when you're a student, you might be someone's daughter, you might be a student, you might be a student at Stanford, you might be someone who lives in Palo Alto, and you might be a bunch of people's friends. These are the kinds of roles you play. Uh -huh. And then you start to think about the influence you have based on these roles. But later on, you might run in organizations, you might be in an advocacy group, you might work for the government. And those roles have different levels of influence and power. So I think one of the things that the students are learning is that, you know, they they need to start to see that the systems are made out of these different entities and these different kinds of roles that and they can play multiple at once. Yeah. So they could work in the healthcare system, but they can also advocate for doing treating health in a different way. Yeah. And that sometimes they can be kind of dissonance with one another, but that's mm. only because they're trying to do things against the grain. And I think yeah. that's good. <laughs> now, for someone like me who works in this system that is so broken and it's so easy to become so jaded, I guess, when I, when I think about the future, but at the beginning of the conversation, you said design is optimistic. And I'm curious to know your thoughts on when you look at the future of health, are you optimistic or pessimistic? I am optimistic because I think there is, just as a Chinese-American woman, I would not want to be alive at any other time but now. Mm. If I think about, you know, it's someone who's interested in history, I might look at 100 years ago or 200 years ago and think like, oh, look at how things used to be then. And then I'm like, oh, wait, no, I'm not a part of that story. <laughs> like, yeah. I wouldn't be allowed to go to school, <laughs> right? <laughs> so it's really also not just health, but all other things, despite how messed up many things are, there's been a lot of progress made. Yeah. So I'm confident that we can continue working through this mess. And that's just the way it is. And that it's important to maintain optimism and not feel disillusioned by the gravity of the problem. Yeah, such a good perspective to have. 
if one of our listeners were to come visit you, Joanne, where would you take them out to eat? So I'm in Berkeley. So the Bay Area is, of course, full of really good food. But my favorite place, which is not a long walk from me here in Berkeley, is this Thai temple with a name that is I will not even attempt to pronounce. But the way it works is that it's kind of you exchange money for a bunch of tokens and then you use the tokens to get all kinds of different Thai food. So there's all the mochi buns and the noodles and whatever else. But so it's kind of like a cafeteria. But the best thing is there's a huge lawn with like park tables. So it's really like a food festival every time you go. So it's super good vibes. And of course, the weather is generally nice. So everybody's always eating outside and meeting people they've never met before. I think this is like the perfect combination of kind of really interesting cultural heritage, super good food, really great social interactions, and just generally the best of what eating a meal could be is to be together with people and outside. I love being outside. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) You're getting me hungry. I'll put a link to that restaurant if it's okay with you. I don't, I don't yeah. know if I want to blow up your spot. We'll put it in your show notes. The thing is, it's, it's I guess, not an official restaurant because it's actually a, a Thai temple. Like, there are people. Oh, it is, like literally a it Thai is temple. Literally, it is literally a Thai temple. What? So I think this is why there's a token system. So, if, like, actually, you're making donations to the temple by eating the food, right? That so is it's amazing. Kind of, it has a kind of uh, Thai temple currency where you know you use these food tokens that's so cool but yeah there are also people praying and doing like kind of those kinds of things i love that (laughs) well thanks for coming on the show i'm so grateful that you took some time out to chat with me yeah it's been fun you can find Joanne Chung on Twitter at J-O-A-N-N-E-K-C-H-E-U-N-G and reach out to me on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab is produced by the amazing Rob Pugisi, editing by Fernando K. Rose. The music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.